0: You can remain standing for the honoring of the reading of God's Word today. Sermon this morning is entitled, Ask, Seek, and Knock. Our passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will, he, will, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your fa- children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You may be seated. I think that as the years go by we are becoming a prayerless nation. This is not just subjective feeling but it's fact. It can be seen all around us. It can be seen by the fact that prayer in schools are no longer mandated. It can be seen all across the nation as we see prayer Diminish. A few weeks ago, I reported that nearly 18.1% of the American population over the age of 18 suffer from some sort of anxiety disorder. Millions of people all around this nation are living each day, or at least part of each day, in fear, trepidation, and anxiety. The Christian, however, has a bona fide pathway to peace. The Christian's peace is not based on positive thinking, nor is it found on a psychologist's couch. The Christian's peace is not fleeting, nor is the Christian's peace imaginary and self-derived. Instead, our peace is found in the rock-solid, eternal person of Jesus Christ. He is our Prince of Peace. And he has come to give you peace. Peace from all your anxieties and fears. Listen to Isaiah 26 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. As that verse states, God gives us peace through faith. Only when our minds are stayed on him, only when we trust in him, will we have the sweet peace that we are desperately searching for. Sure, we could run to entertainment, relationships, work, or other amusements, but these are all merely distractions. They will not give us the peace that we desperately need, and our anxieties often flood back once we are left to ourselves again. Now, if faith is the means by which God grants us peace, then prayer is the exercising of faith. I want to say this clearly. You cannot have peace in God if you don't have faith in God. Unless your mind is stayed on Him, there is no peace. So if faith is the means by which God grants us peace then prayer is the exercising of faith. Yes, God could have easily chose to simply give us all we needed without expecting our prayers, but in His infinite wisdom, God did not do that. Instead, God created a world in which He expects His children to exercise their faith through prayer, and He has promised His children that prayer works. And so today's central biblical principle, what I want you to leave here this morning with, if there's one thing you leave here this morning with, it is this principle I'm about to give you. Diligently continue to trust God and pray, for the Father will give every good thing that you ask. I'm going to say it again. Diligently continue to trust God and pray. For the Father will give every good thing that you ask for. Now when I made a statement like that, two questions should pop up in your mind right away. Number one, where did Pastor Stephen get that from? And number two, does it really work that way? Does it really work that way? Now, I want to answer the second question first, because the first question is easy to answer. Does it really work that way? Well, if you're asking the question because you believe that what I just said is simply another way of saying God will answer every prayer request, then you're wrong. It doesn't work that way. That way. It doesn't work that way. I did not say God will give you everything you ask for. I want you to look again closely at today's central biblical principle. The words were chosen carefully. Here's what I did say. Diligently continue to trust God and pray, for the Father will give every good thing that you ask for. God promises to give you every good thing that you ask for. Now the fact is, the key word there is good. Not everything that we ask for is good. There are things that we deem good, but God, who is wiser, knows that it is not good for us. But here's where it gets complex. There are things that are objectively, humanly good but God also doesn't give us those. So I don't merely stop with the first proposition. But I want to elaborate that first point a little bit. God decides not to grant our requests at times. Because like a loving Father who knows best, sometimes our requests are not objectively good. The thief, before he decides to steal, who prays, God, cover me as I steal this item, should not expect his prayers answered, for that is not a good thing. Certainly in the thief's mind, the heist, if successfully Completed is a good thing in his mind, but objectively it is not a good thing, and he should not pray such prayers with any expectation that God will answer such a request. But then there are other things which are objectively good on a human level. For example, the healing of a neighbor's cancer. How many times have we prayed? for a relative, a neighbor, a friend to be healed, yet God in His infinite wisdom still does not answer the request. And we, at times, might ask ourselves why, especially if we're younger in our faith. We might point to a principle like this and say, God, You promised, Pastor Steve taught from your word that you will give every good thing. Well, the healing of my neighbor of cancer is a good thing. Why did you not keep your word, God? You see how this could go? This can easily fall into that kind of mentality. God in His infinite wisdom still does not answer the request because it is not what I would call an ultimate good. This is not an official term or anything. This is something that I just made up for the purpose of discernment. You could call it um, the apex of good or uh, the prime good. I, I call it the ultimate good. We must remember that an omnipotent, omni benevolent God, I'm going to say that one more time, we must remember that an Omnipotent, omni-benevolent God created a world filled with evil, filled with evil. And if you pause right there, the atheist thinks he has won. Why? Either your God is omni-benevolent or omnipotent. He certainly cannot be both, is what he thinks in his mind either God is not omnipotent and therefore evil in this world is something out of His controls, He is omnibenevolent, but because He is not omnipotent, therefore evil exists. But then they would say, if that's your God, He's not really God, is He? On the flip side, if He's omnipotent, but evil exists... Then the atheist says, aha, evil exists because of your god, so he must not be omni benevolent, meaning all good. And so, an evil god exists who by its very definition cannot be god. Because god is that being who has all of the prime attributes, including goodness. So, an evil god can scarcely be god if you follow the logic there. So the the atheist thinks he's one. But I don't pause there. Here's what I would say to finish my thought. We must remember that an omnipotent, all-powerful, omnibenevolent, all-good, God created a world filled with evil so that He could use the evil for His ultimate good. Then we no longer have a logical inconsistency. Hence, In God's infinite wisdom, the death of a grain of wheat produces much fruit. The blindness of a beggar enables God to demonstrate His glory. And the worst sin in human history, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, brings about the salvation of humanity. tell you what if you were a disciple at the foot of the cross the day of Jesus crucifixion you would have thought that everything was lost you thought you would have thought that evil had triumphed but God brought it all about for good for ultimate good Therefore, God does not answer every prayer, even seemingly good prayers of His saints, because God, as a wise and loving God, knows best. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul made a seemingly good request to God. Three times Paul asked God to remove his thorn from him. But three times God refused Because the thorn was serving a greater good, an ultimate good. Namely, Paul's sanctification and reliance on God's mighty grace. So if you listen to me this morning, here's what I'm saying. A lot of times, you hear this principle taught prematurely. In other words, the pastor sort of stops at the point where God doesn't grant you your request because he has the he, he, he knows in his wisdom that it's not a good thing. And so he doesn't grant you his request. That's often where discernment ends. But then the person is often asking himself, what about all the plethora of things that are objectively good that God doesn't answer? And here we have the answer for that. God, in His ultimate wisdom, is pursuing ultimate good. A thorn in the flesh, the remo- we don't know what this thorn was, but whatever it was, we know that the removal of a thorn is an objectively good thing. Let's say it was a physical ailment that Paul was suffering, and a lot of scholars believe that. Wouldn't the healing of an apostle be a good thing? Wouldn't he be able to do ministry more effectively? It is an objectively good thing to remove a thorn, but listen to how Paul put it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, and I don't think these were just three individual instances. I think these were three campaigns of prayer. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Maybe it was a demon afflicting him. Who knows what it was? And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee, my, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The ultimate good is not so much the removal of the infirmity, but the power of Christ resting upon Paul. That is why God didn't answer his prayer. It's not because the prayers were faithless. And there goes the prosperity gospel, the name it and claiming movement, right? If that was true, Paul must have been an infidel because boy, I tell you, he prayed three times, illness, the, the thorn was not removed. And what would Kenneth Copeland come and say? It's because you lacked faith, Paul. No, it was not. It had nothing to do with Paul's prayer or faithlessness. It had nothing to do with the request being evil. It was a good request. It had everything to do with the glory of God and the ultimate good that God was after. I'll give you another example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell on his knees and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Was that prayer answered? Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Did the Father ever stop loving the Son? And yet the Father did not remove the cup of wrath from Christ. Instead, the Son drank the full cup of the Father's wrath on the cross for all of your sins and mine. God the Father in His infinite love for you does not always answer your prayers because God the Father is working all things not for your good, not for the good, but for ultimate good. And you've got to believe that because it takes faith to believe that. If you don't have faith, you want the phone removed. You could care less about the grace of God descending upon you in fuller measure. It takes faith to want that more. If we knew what God the Father knew, then we too will not answer our own prayer requests. I say that one more time. If we knew what God the Father knew, we too would not answer our own prayer requests. Regardless of what we pray for. We should always, therefore, acknowledge, as Christ did, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Whether it's a good thing or an evil thing, whether there's a career that you really want to go into, a person you really want to marry, whatever it may be, a a good thing or a bad thing, after you ardently pray for the Lord about it, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. For our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us, and that ending right there shows ultimate trust. God, if that person doesn't marry me, God, if that job doesn't open up for me, God, if you don't heal that cancer, I still love you, I still praise you, and I know you did this because you love me. Ultimate good. We are to pray fervently for our unbelieving neighbors. There's no question about that. We're not God. Someone say, well, if you're going to pray that way, nevertheless, your wills be done. Uh, What's the purpose of prayer? Again, that is a failed failed understanding of all this. We are to pray fervently for our unbelieving neighbors until they die because God answers prayer. But if God never saves them, what then? Okay, again, the salvation of our lost neighbor is a good thing, and not only is it an objectively good thing, we would go further and say, it is within the will of God. The Bible says, God desires all men to be saved. So a Christian could easily be defeated and say, God, I prayed for my neighbor Joe to be saved. It's within the will of God. I see it in Scripture. Why have you not answered? We must humbly declare, and this is where it's really difficult. You're not going to hear this from many pulpits, but you will hear it here today, because this is what the Bible teaches. Could it be possible that you go your entire life and Joe spends his entire life and both both of you end your lives and Joe never comes to Christ? You pray every single day for Joe's salvation. Is it possible that God might allow Joe to die without being saved? without answering your prayer. We all know the answer there. We all know the answer there. We are to pray with faith every day while Joe is alive that Joe will be saved. We are to pray expecting that God will answer our prayer. But we also understand that Joe might die and never be saved. What then? Well then we must humbly declare that perhaps God did not save that neighbor because His damnation in hell will serve the ultimate good, namely the glory of God even more than His salvation would have. Did you hear what I just said? If Job dies... And Joe's a hypothetical person. If we pray every day and Joe never comes to Christ and God does not save Joe, then we must humbly declare that perhaps God did not save that neighbor because the neighbor's damnation in hell will serve the ultimate good, namely the glory of God. And in the infinite wisdom of God, Joe's damnation glorifies God more than Joe's salvation. Joe's, And in the same manner, your election glorifies God, whereas Joe's non-election glorifies God in a way that we could never understand. I would, you know, I preach this from the pulpit, but is this something I would say during evangelism? No, most unbelievers, they can't get their mind around this. And it would just not be wise to, to share something like this with an unbeliever. But I want to say that anthrocentric, meaning man-centered theology, hates the kind of talk that I just gave. But Paul makes the same declaration in Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, "...has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction." Here's what's happening here. While Joe is alive on earth, you're praying for Joe's salvation. God is not answering that prayer. What is God doing? He is enduring with much patience Joe's existence. But why is Joe never getting saved? Because Joe, before the foundation of the world, was prepared for destruction. Why? So that God may show His wrath and make known His power. All in one verse. There you go. But, 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 and I would stop you and say, Who are you, O man? I'm the pastor. I don't know the answers. All I know is that for some reason glorifies God ultimately in a way that the salvation of all of humanity would not. That's heavy. But that's something we must understand. Perhaps... And now I'm moving sort of from the greater to the less. The A A for arguments here, right? So if salvation works this way, then let's move less, smaller, if you will. Perhaps the cancer needs to take its course. And the death of a loved one will bring him into heaven and much needed rest. Or maybe the cancer and the subsequent death is what's needed to wake everyone else up so that they take the gospel seriously. I don't know. Only God does. Perhaps the rejection from a job is necessary in order for you to work at a better fitting job. Now, for the Christian, I believe with all my heart that God wants to do that for you because He wants to put you in a more maximum position. Perhaps failure at a certain endeavor is required for God to humble you. Failure humbles us, doesn't it? In basketball, a missed shot humbles us in a way that a made shot never would. Perhaps a certain endeavor is uh, uh, perhaps a, a failure at a certain endeavor is required for God to humble you so that he could use you in a better capacity later down the road. I guarantee you, God, there were aspects of Paul's ministry that, was, that were deeply impacted by that thorn never being removed. God could use him better. My children hate receiving needles from the doctor. Yet I still hold them down and make sure that they receive the shots. And they stay there for me. Why? Because they trust me. They know I won't harm them. It serves their ultimate good. Now, they may not know that, and they have no idea what a vaccine is, but they need to trust that their father would not hurt them simply for the sake of evil. Any pain that I allow for my children to endure is for their ultimate good, even physical discipline. Likewise, on a greater, much greater scale, Christians must always do three things. Number one, we must always pray because prayer exercises our faith and our dependency on God. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 5. I am divine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you really believe this? I'm asking all of you. Do you all believe this? Yeah, Pastor Steve, of course we believe that. Jesus said it. we believe that. Then you're praying, right? Right? Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, when we don't pray, we are telling God that He's wrong. Prayerlessness declares that we can do all things apart from Christ. When we don't pray, it is our declaration, God, I got this. I don't need you today. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. God will intentionally make it difficult. So you're on your knees begging Him, Please, O Lord, I need You. Oh, how I need You. I assure you, you cannot even finish this day without Christ. Therefore, take time to pray without ceasing. Typically, I discover that older Christians pray more often than younger Christians Because life has taught them just how weak and ineffective humans are without prayer. Do you know how many variables in life had to occur for you to get here safely today? You think everything's in your control. You turned the key of the car and you drove right and it went right. That's not all there is to it. It is a very narrow-minded, nearsighted way of thinking. I mean, think about it. You have For any, any of you who have a tr- small child, all it takes is one moment where you look the other way and your small child runs into the street and a car hits the child and the child is dead. We had a moment like that. But there were no cars at that particular moment. And so the child was... Not harmed, the child is well. But I realize all it takes is one car at a random moment and the child is gone. We cannot control anything. You know how many 20 year olds just get an aneurysm sitting on their couch watching TV and they drop over dead? You can't control your own heart from beating. Older Christians pray more often than younger Christians because life has taught them just how weak and ineffective humans are without prayer. Second, when God answers our prayer, we must give thanks to God. Nothing displays unbelief like thanklessness. How hypocritical and odd it is for us to pray for God, to God for the fulfillment of a certain request only to be completely thankless to God once He grants us our request. See, I believe that our reactions after prayer are very telling. Gratitude to God comes upon the answer of a prayer. Um, Let me put it this way. Gratitude to God upon the answer of a prayer demonstrates faith, and it pleases God. We make much about praying. We make very little about gratitude. But faith and gratitude are tied together. Do you remember the ten lepers who asked for healing from God? And only one, a Samaritan leper, came back to thank Jesus upon receiving His healing. Here's Jesus' response in Luke 17. Then Jesus answered, And Jesus... Well, I'll just read it. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was not one found... to return and give praise to God, except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. This last part right there, that is so key. You see, this, this, this word, faith, this is, this is far more important than the leprosy being healed. Ten were healed, only one was told, Rise, your faith has made you well. Why? Because faith and gratitude are inextricable. I'm going to say that again. Faith and thanksgiving are inextricable. They are linked. A thankless people are a faithless people. Be sure of that. Discipline yourself into doing that. You, when God answers a prayer right away, when He reminds you, thank Him. Take a moment to pray and thank God. Because you know, I know how humans are. In the back of our minds, yeah, I know we prayed about it, and yeah, it happened the way we prayed for. But, but did God really do it? Did God answer that prayer? Yes, He did. So give Him thanks. Number 3 Christians ought to when God does not answer our prayers we must carefully never complain like rotten spoiled children or like Israelites in the wilderness if you think about Israelite history in the wilderness really all it is rotten children Complaining. That's that's real, in a nutshell. That's what that was. So they they wandered for forty years because they were rotten, disobedient, spoiled children. And in forty years of wandering, they were rotten, disobedient, complaining, spoiled children. How many times you read the King James? It says stiff necked stiff necked These are stiff necked people. Yet God still loved them, and God bore them, and God was patient. Whenever we complain against God. When our prayers aren't answered, we are either telling Him one of two things. One, God, You don't love me, and You're seeking to harm me. Or two, I know better than You. Isn't that what we do? When, when we complain, isn't that we're doing one of those two things. Either we're saying, God, You don't love me, that's why You didn't answer my prayer. Or we're saying, God, I'm wiser than you. And if you only you knew what I knew, you would have answered my prayer. How pomp. How pompous. Instead of glorifying in their weaknesses, like the Apostle Paul, the Israelites decided rather to complain against God. Just as gratitude and faith are tied together, so is unbelief and discontent. There's the other side of that coin. Listen to the writer of Hebrews diagnosed the problem of the wilderness Israelite. So if I was talking with someone and they were to ask, well, what was the problem with the Israelites in the wilderness? Well, what was the root problem? Well, let's just look at Hebrews 4 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us. Just as they also. Just that's amazing, isn't it? That the Old Testament saints had the gospel. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I could preach the gospel all day from this pulpit. But unless it's united by faith in your hearts, it profits nothing, it's useless, it's vain, it's futile, waste of time. I, could, and I think you get the point. Faith and gratitude goes together, which results in prayer. On the flip side, unbelief and discontentment. Are you a person who complains a lot? I'm going to say this again. I'm going to ask this again. Are you a person who complains a lot? Carefully examine your life. You might be an unbeliever. Due to their unbelief, they continually lived lives of disobedience and they constantly complained against God and Moses in the wilderness. I'm going to recap. Christians must want continually exercise their faith by praying to God and by the way I want to just add here faithless prayers are useless exercises when we pray we must pray with faith I just have to add that to point one just in case you legalistically just try to do point one without faith you might as well not pray at all this is why in my opinion okay in my personal experience prayer is so hard there are times where prayer is easy for me there are times where prayer is very difficult for me well, you're the pastor. Isn't prayer supposed to be always easy for you? No. Here's the reason why. Faith. Faithless prayer is useless. What makes prayer hard is the question, am I praying with faith? Do I actually have a genuine expectation that I am in the will of God and I expect God to answer this request. That's the hardest. That's, that takes the most amount of mental hardware for me. That's the hardest part about prayer. I could, I could sit and pray a bunch of words. That's easy. Anybody could do that. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer to be prayer must be united with faith. And that's the hardest thing about prayer. Apostle James says, if you're going to pray faithlessly, don't pray. Second, give thanks to God when He answers our prayers. And third, never complain, instead, trust in God's love when our prayers are not answered. In our continuously faithless world, God has intentionally hardwired prayer into our lives so that the fact that we faithfully pray and our response to answered and unanswered prayer both play an integral part in our ongoing relationship with God. In verse 9 of today's text, going from lesser to greater, Jesus reminds us that if evil fallen human beings know how to give good things to their children, then of course God the Father will not hold back giving good things to those who ask Him. This gives us another impetus for prayer. In other words, another motivational force for prayer. We not only pray to deepen our relationship with God or to foster our dependency upon God, but in today's passage, God wants us to pray so that we could actually receive good things from Him. Now, there's a parallel text in the Gospel of Luke where Luke, instead of good things, he writes the Holy Spirit. Matthew here writes good things. And I'm going to take both. This gives an entire fresh perspective to the age-old statement, you have not because you ask not. Even about things that you think are slam dunk, just take a moment and pray about it. Ask God for it. Secure it in prayer. James 4.2 says that. You have not because you asked not. Prayer is how we ask God, not only for salvation, not just for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as Luke says, not only for our salvation and evangelistic fervor, but as verse 11 in Matthew states, good things, the Greek there is agatha, good things, to those who ask. Of course, God's kingdom, the Holy Spirit, And God's advance, the advance of God's kingdom are always primary in our prayer requests, but it is good to know that God will also provide us with all good things necessary for the fulfillment of His mission. It is a good thing to know that God will provide us with good things in this lifetime through our prayers. We must ask, however, according to the will of God, underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ, and in faith and humility. And when we ask, we we should never expect God to deceive us. From a distance, a loaf of bread could look like stone. From a distance, a fish kind of looks like a serpent. Yet not even the worst father would deceive his own children with such deceptions on a much greater level. Your Heavenly Father will never deceive you. If you submit to His guidance, He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Amen? We've got to believe that. There are two different perspectives for today's text. One set of scholars... And you know what, most of you probably read this and you didn't even know there were two different perspectives and I thought to myself, you know, I usually preach 45 minutes to an hour, do I want to make this even longer? And and I want to share this with you because I think it's important. So I'm going to give you two perspectives. One set of scholars believe that verses 7 and 8 represent three different levels. Three different levels. They believe that asking, seeking, and knocking all each refer to distinct different things. Okay? I'll give you an example for this type of thinking. Uh, The scholars who made the ESV study Bible notes, write this, here's how they put it. See, See how they make a distinction? Here's what they say. Ask, disciples should come to God in humility and awareness of need. Seek, connects one's prayer with responsible action in pursuing the will of God. Knock suggests perseverance. Disciples are to persist in prayer, confident that their Father will provide whatever is best for them according to His sovereign gracious will. Problem, with, I, I don't take this view. I, I don't by the way, I don't think it's heretical or anything like that. I'm sure it's probably blessed a lot of people even just reading that. When I initially studied the text for sermon prep, I said, oh, that sounds pretty good. But then when you study a little bit deeper, you, you, I, I can't hold to the distinctions here. I don't think Jesus meant three different distinct things when he said, ask, seek, and knock. I think that the terms are interchangeable. Nowhere does it say that someone should keep on knocking there. It just says knock. And it will be opened. The, the the story about the widow asking the judge is in the in the Gospel of Luke. Here it just says knock. Knocking doesn't necessarily suggest perseverance. I could knock on my my mail my UPS FedEx guy literally knocks once and he leaves the package it doesn't necessarily mean perseverance and the terms are interchangeable asking should should be done with perseverance seeking should be done in humility and in awareness of need and so on and so forth do you see what I mean? you could interchange all of these furthermore in verses 9, 10 and 11 Christ only addresses the asking component in all three verses do you see that there? Go to verses 9, 10, and 11. Jesus only addresses the asking component. So I think, I believe, that what Christ was merely attempting to get us to to do, was was, uh, with, with all three words, was to simply pray. When Jesus says, ask, seek, knock it was His way of telling us to pray and being rather emphatic about it, which is why He said it to us in three different ways. It's kind of like what I just did a few minutes ago with uh, the word useless. I said it was, it is useless, it is futile, it is in vain. That's what Jesus was trying to do here. Seek is Christ's not way of telling us to pray. Ask is Jesus' way of telling us to pray. Knock is Christ's way of telling us to pray. John Calvin put it this way. Ask and it shall be given to you. It is an exhortation to prayer. And in, as in this exercise of religion, which ought to be our first concern, we are so careless and sluggish. Christ presses the same thing, I agree, upon us under three forms of expression. There is no superfluity of language when He says, ask, seek, knock, but lest the simple doctrine should be unimpressive, He perseveres in order to rouse us from our inactivity think Calvin nails that so I agree with Calvin disagree with the ESV scholars on this see how a simple passage could have so many different twists to it Christ's point is abundantly simple and clear pray or else you will not receive the father asks to give good things the father seeks to give good things to his children who ask God so desires to move us to pray that He uses three different expressions to rouse us into action. He tells us to ask for we will receive when we do. He tells us to seek for we will find when we do. And Christ tells us to knock for the door will be opened when we do. The question for all of us today is will we? Jesus said it in three different ways. And then he puts a, an awesome promise at the end. He says, God the Father will give you good things. He wants you to pray. Will you? Will you pray? Do you really believe that by asking God, that prayer has so much power, you will receive? Well, that will be seen tomorrow. Or the rest of today. As you go into your closet, close the doors and get on your knees. Nothing exhibits faith like secret prayer. Will we take Jesus at His word? Do we really believe that if we don't pray, uh, the events of our lives will turn out a different way? I do. That's why I I know I can't afford not to pray. And the more important a decision becomes, you have to spend more time in prayer. Whether it's the salvation of an unbelieving loved one, guidance with regard regard to vocation, healing of the heart or the mind, providence of a job, or even a parking spot, will we ask our Father in Heaven who rejoices in giving us good things, or will we rather stubbornly And with anxiety, seek it all on our own. The choice is yours. I know what I would do. What would you do? Now here's how I want to end it. I want to end by telling you this. The only reason you have access to the Father in prayer is because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you are His son or His daughter, therefore God answers your prayer. How do you become a child of God? You become a child of God by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here is the gospel. Listen carefully. Number one, a holy, righteous God loves you, but He must send all sinners to hell because He is a God of justice. Number two, we are all sinners. We are all sinners and we all deserve the wrath of God. We deserve punishment in hell for our sins from God. Number three, God, however, loved you so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for your sins. And three days later, He historically, not mythically, historically rose again from the dead. Number four, if you repent, meaning you hate and you turn from your life of sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, your God, and your Savior, you will have eternal life, and God promises to give you all good things as you pray. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You